The Talk and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. Shop designer golf apparel, shoes and accessories from the world's most exclusive and best golf brands. Online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash talk and golf. I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 39 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today I have a very special treat for you. A one-on-one interview with the president of the Golf Heritage Society, Dr. Bern Bernanke. One of the most diverse organizations surrounding golf's great history, the Golf Heritage Society, is an organization that celebrates golf's great history by working with golf historians, golf collectors, golf artists, and even golfers who play vintage equipment in an effort to give them a voice to their historical knowledge and share ideas. Dr. Bernanke joins us on the 50th anniversary of the Golf Heritage Society. Dr. Byrne Bernacki, thank you so much for joining us on the 39th episode of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Good morning, Connor Lewis. Thank you for having me. We are so happy to have you. Byrne, you know, before we get into the history of the Golf Heritage Society, perhaps you can share a little bit about your history. In golf, okay. Well, listen, Connor, I'm a regular guy. Uh, I did not... uh, grow up on a uh, country club setting. As a matter of fact, I'm a uh, uh, local city kid. And um, at about age nine, uh, my Uncle Harry started talking about the game of golf and, boy, the passion that he had for most things, and especially playing golf with his buddy Jack was very appealing to me. So, you know, uh, Uncle Harry took me out in the backyard and uh, dropped a couple plastic golf balls, and we whacked away at him, and I thought it was really cool. So the next thing you know, I had five clubs and uh, uh, a few of those plastic golf balls hit in the backyard. And probably about age 10, I made my way onto the municipal golf course, which is the Shenley Park Golf Course in the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, and it will soon be the home of the Arnold Palmer Learning Center for the first tee of Pittsburgh, because I live real close to it. But in any case, uh, Connor, the the way that it happened was I accumulated a couple clubs. I had five. And don't you know, um, one of my clubs was a... Uh, uh, it said on it mashy and it looked to be about a five iron and uh it was a hickory stick and it had a little bow to it but uh i had four other clubs um and one of them was a um a three wood and another one was another hickory and one of them was something i learned later was a pyrotone uh coated plastic to look like wood so i i always thought it was wooden but it was my nine iron and i loved it so anyway, um, I got involved in uh, playing up at the Shenley Park Golf Course on Tuesdays and Thursdays after the chores were done and I had a permit. 
And I buddied up with the young kids and heard stories from the old guys because Shenley Park is a 1903 um, venue, and uh, there's just a ton of history there. So I sort of was baptized in the game with uh, some old clubs and some old stories. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, now today, fast forward today, uh, what, what, what's in your collection? I mean, you're the president of the Golf Heritage Society. I imagine you collect things. So what... what 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 do you fancy in your collection? Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a family doctor, and family doctors do a little bit of everything, a little cardiology, lung disease, pulmonology, little skin surgery. So my collection reflects that personality. Um, a quick story how I got involved in it. My lovely wife was looking for a specific thing in an antique shop. And I was looking at the ceiling a lot and wandering around, and she noticed and said, well, I don't know. Why don't you look for some golf stuff? So now, well, about close to 30 years later and probably several thousands of dollars later, um, I have uh, uh, accumulated a few things uh, in my collection. So uh, I'll be happy to tell you a little bit about it and how I've done what I've done. I loved everything. Um, I, I like to see the old balls and the old clubs and, you know, uh, it's okay to have uh, inexpensive things like pencils and scorecards. And, you know, if you talk to some of our youngsters in the first tee, we start to understand that there are collectibles and there are treasures. And, Connor, a treasure is something that's personal and it might be because it's a collectible that you found inexpensively or fortuitously. But the young people have the pencil from the first uh, U.S. Open uh, golf course that they played on or the uh, ball that they played uh, with their parent for the first time on a regular golf course. So those kinds of possessions, I think, are uh, important uh, to acknowledge as collectibles. Uh, but as I um, got more interested in the older um, antiquities of the game of golf, I gravitated first to those clubs, and I would uh, look in uh, barrels at an antique store or at a yard sale, and um, uh, I only later learned that there were groups and trade shows. So I, I had a few of this and a few of that um, uh, to, to start off with, Connor. Yeah. So you're now, fast forward even more so, you're the president of the Golf Heritage Society. Uh, what Can you explain to our listeners what is the Golf Heritage Society? Okay, well, you know, here's how it happened. I, I, I started collecting more things and running into fabulous people. And, you know, people who mentored me, um, I, I started to understand about the organization that, gee, there were actually people that got together. So I'm going to define the organization and then go back and tell that story uh, of how it happened. But the Golf Heritage Society, we call ourselves the GHS, um, we're here to share knowledge and promote appreciation for the history and the traditions of the game of golf. And I guess you could say we're in the, we're in the uh, world of education and entertainment using the great game of golf uh, and its fabulous, lengthy history as our platform. So we, we like to think that... Um, the knowledge base of our membership is our greatest asset. 
Um, you know, we, we were uh, founded in 1970. We're a club uh, um, restorer and collector. Um, Bob Koontz, who lived uh, south of Columbus, uh, I think near Dayton, Ohio, uh, and a guy named Joe Murdoch. Joe Murdoch was a book collector and specialized in golf book collecting. And these guys bumped into each other and uh, started to communicate by mail and decided to form a society. And in 1970, they did that. And they called themselves the Golf Collectors Society. And they um, had members, I think there were 37 original founding members um, who were interested in different aspects of collecting in the game. So that's how it happened for the Golf uh, Collector Society, which then became the Golf Heritage Society. Yeah, what did what did collecting look like before the Golf Collector Society? I mean, were there? I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. You, if, if you understand my get, I, is I, I think the organization has sparred people into collecting and learn more more about collecting antiquities of golf but i'm curious if we know anything about what happened prior i mean it was just a bunch of individuals collecting old clubs i imagine i think you're right corner uh, it, it is it is a chicken or egg thing because when you ask around and ask people to tell their story of how they got started um they sort of had some some things and a couple of those things were um simple treasures that i described earlier uh, and, you know, the way we talk about it is if you have something that's cool, that's, that's cool. And if you, if you have two of them, that's even better. But if you have three of them, now you've started a collection of them. So I think when a person has that uh, pencil from a venue um, and they have two or three or four of them, they might get the idea, hey, what if uh, I go back and start collecting um, intentionally? Uh, from these types of courses, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people did the same thing with whatever. Uh, it could be programs from a U.S. Open or from a Ryder Cup or a Masters or badges or trophies, not only balls and clubs, uh, but also collectibles uh, in, the, in the way of um, artistic things like ceramics and uh, etchings and paintings. So the world of collecting, uh, as uh, Mr. Uh, Kunz and Murdoch started to understand what they had created, was a major interest uh, which really defined the scope of the game of golf. So people would identify what they had particular interests in, and within the society – those subgroups could start to talk to each other and, and help each other find uh, and uh, strengthen their, their personal collections, as well as their knowledge base about those things that they collected. Right. You know, uh, one thing, and we've talked about this burn before, but if it weren't for uh, the predecessing, you know, the predecessor's name, which was the Golf Collector Society, now the Golf Heritage Society, we likely, I wouldn't have this show. I wouldn't have the Society of Golf Historians, social media presence, and the company, and all the other things that go along with it, because it was really uh, the thing that spurred me on the most were three gentlemen that were part of the Golf Collector Society, and that was Bill Reed, Russ Fisher, and Randy Jensen. Those three were pivotal into me starting a collection, digging more into history, getting immersed, 
and then sharing it. And a special thanks. I know you're on your 50th anniversary, but a special thanks to the organization because without those three gentlemen and this organization, uh, we wouldn't be talking, at least in, in this platform. Well, Connor, there you have it. Uh, you have named uh, three wonderful individuals, all three of whom uh, I, I know. Uh, and you're right. Um, they were mentors to you. They sort of helped you understand by telling their story. And then you went in your own direction, as we all do. Uh, Bill Reed is a past president of the then Golf Collector Society. And, you know, Bill has a collection. Uh, Bill was a historian. Uh, Bill is a player, and Bill has uh, uh, been a major part of the um, golf, uh, heritage golf, I call it heritage golf, because it could be hickory or it could be classic golf. Uh, he's been a, a part of that picture for a lot of years, and, and, and Bill uh, espouses to encouraging uh, players to play whatever kind of golf club they want on a specific venue. Uh, you know, uh, Russ Fisher, great guy. Um, he's a player and a, a hickory player and a club uh, restorer. And uh, he's done awesome work. And he's handed off now to a young protege, uh, Kirk Watson. Kirk's probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. And he's now a uh, regional director in that same region where you met these oh, folks. Nice. I didn't know that. And I'm going to leave it to you to tell the story of the one and only Randy Jensen. Yeah, he's uh, what, what the, his nickname is the Hickory Tiger. I think he's the eight-time champion of the National Hickory Championship. And for you at home, folks, it's a tournament that um, Pete Georgie throws. Uh, it is uh, a pre-1900. It was the first pre-1900 golf tournament of the modern era. Uh, originally played at Oakhurst Links, which is one of the oldest golf courses in the United States in West Virginia. And you basically play a gutta percha ball from the pre-1900 times with pre-1900 clubs and pre-1900 rules. And the tournament is uh, ruled over by uh, by the man they call the czar, Pete Georgity, who's also part of the Golf uh, Heritage Society and has joined us on uh, the season one of this podcast. So, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, take it a, a, a step further uh, to say that uh, I've had the opportunity to play with Randy, and uh, uh, he is that uh, master of the uh, early game. And I'm going to do a commercial for the NHC, um, and we hope that eventually it'll come back to Oakhurst. Uh, Oakhurst oh, was the – it was the first venue that there was uh, documentation of competition in the U.S. for a – Prize. The medal of the Oakhurst tournament is called the Oakhurst Medal, and it is housed in the USGA Museum in a prominent place as you walk through the course of American golf history. So you could see the Oakhurst Medal there. Well, anyway, fast forward to my first trip to uh, the NHC, um, and I, I met Pete Georgity, took five clubs that I'd accumulated. And uh, played with a uh, practice round with Pete and a guy named Mike, uh, Mike Just, who was uh, part of the – Good guy. Uh, yeah. yeah, part of the Louisville golf team. His older brother, uh, Elmore, and he uh, owned and operated uh, the Louisville Golf Company uh, until recently uh, sold to and taken over by a young uh, star um, named Jeremy Wright. Well, in any case, Pete looked over my five clubs. They were all irons. They were smooth face. And Pete said, um, uh, 
this is a beautiful club. It's uh, uh, made in uh, Philadelphia in 1903, but it's not eligible for this uh, competition. And another club that he had similar comments and and uh, Dis, uh, disqualified it. So I played a practice round with three clubs, uh, a putter <laughs> at Oakhurst. Yeah. He's uh, just trying putter. to help his chances in winning the thing. That's my philosophy. There. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it a few times since, but in any case, I played the nine holes with three clubs, uh, a, a, a mashy, uh, sort of a mashy niblick, uh, and a, um, and a putter. And I shot a 66 and uh, uh, Mike just took me directly to his car and pulled out a replica uh, pre-1900 um, uh, spoon and said, Burn, you got an amazing game. He says, you shot a 66 with three clubs. But tomorrow in the competition, I think you're going to enjoy playing one of these and get a little more distance off the tee. If you like it, you buy it. You don't, you pop it back in the trunk. And that was my uh, uh, starting relationship with two uh, Hall of Famers in the field, Pete Georgity and Michael Just. So that's how it happens. You know, you sort of get an invitation, you show up and you get some mentoring. Some of it's a little bit of tough love on Pete's part. Uh, and, um, and Mike and I have been great friends since until his passing uh, three years ago. So I have to, Connor, I have to tell you the tide has turned uh, because now as president of the Golf Heritage Society, I am the boss of the executive director who happens to be none other than Pete Georgity. What does that make you, the king? Are you the uh, king no, to that, the czar? That, that only makes the me puppet the master? boss. <laughs> that makes me the boss. And, you know, our collaborative arrangement is just wonderful. Uh, Pete and I, uh, just before this call, had our uh, weekly conversation uh, for the uh, interest of our membership of the Golf Heritage Society. And uh, we have a fabulous 10-region uh, um, um, group, uh, 10 regions covering nine of them in the U.S., and number 10 is the rest of the, the golf world, uh, uh, every continent. So it's a blast. Pete and I are having fun, and we have a great board of directors and a lot of opportunities to create uh, recruit young persons uh, uh, to join us, men and women, um, to really uh, come together to understand and participate in the uh, Golf Heritage Society with us. Yeah. So over the years, uh, the Golf Heritage Society, I, I think it just changed its name in 2018. It was the Golf Collector Society. Why the name change? Uh, maybe go through that. Maybe go through sure. why we transitioned. Well, you know, it was really obvious that all of these interests um, uh, in the game of golf are far broader uh, uh, than uh, the collections. And it's true that the collections themselves represent a lot of particular interests that I mentioned before, Connor. But it's really important to acknowledge that there are other uh, experts in societies and interests that stem from the game of golf. So whether a person collects or doesn't collect, um, they can appreciate history. Uh, so in, in fact, um, the golf collectors were essentially a, a group of dedicated, generally mid-aged uh, mid older men um, who collected things and got together to have trade shows and conversations about what they had. They had uh, uh, some 
uh, regional gatherings, but they also had small meetings where they would uh, talk about what they had and, and the history of it and swap items and uh, purchase from each other. But then it became obvious that, hey, we have historians, we have golf writers, we have artists, we have architects, we have course superintendents, um, we have golf professionals, uh, we have teachers, we have country club members, we have golf league members, we have men, we have women, we have younger people, we have older people. So we decided, the Golf Collector Society said, you know, to properly uh, participate uh, and represent all these people, all of these interests, uh, we should uh, uh, think about changing our name. So we took a year and we and we vetted that and we became the Golf Heritage Society in 2018 under the uh, leadership of President, uh, past President um, Jim Jeselnik. And uh, uh, Pete shepherded that um, transition as well. And Pete is our current uh, transition executive director um, who uh, helps us uh, guide and direct the day-to-day operations of the Golf Heritage Society. And here we are. Yeah. And you have a – I mean, with such a large balance um, in a multi-layered membership, you know, like you said, you have players and you have collectors and you have historians and artists. How do you – how do you – find that balance to, to great, yeah how do you find the balance to make your membership happy well you know what uh Carter, it's a great question and it's really an opportunity for me to uh explain where we are the strategic plan that we put together after i was uh elected president we sat down and we talked about how do we make this go how are we organized how do we sure uh assure our financial sustainability. We've applied for a 501c3. We're notified that we're pending and that will happen. Um, and we, we uh, talked about, well, how do we describe ourselves? How do we um, do public relations and, and how do we do outreach so that we can properly participate with all the other societies and organizations that represent the game of golf. And I mentioned our, our friends, the USGA, the historians, um, and they're responsible for play as well as um, uh, shepherding the history and the, and the antiquities of the game. They have the largest collection in the world of golf collectibles and antiquities, and you'll find it at Far Hills at their, at their um uh, their museum. It's a fabulous collection. I love to visit it. I encourage all of your listeners to consider it the the mecca uh, for understanding uh, both the recent history of the game of golf with all the amateur uh, uh, players represented and their trophies, as well as the walkthrough uh, of American going straight back to um, the the earliest history of the game of golf. So we as an organization also understand that we have had members for a long time uh, who are artists who belong to other societies. Um, um, Linda Harto, for example, uh, is a noted landscape artist, and she has uh, rendered uh, magnificent um, pieces for some of the uh, most recognizable golf venues uh, that you could think of. Uh, on both sides of the pond. 
And um, she has been a member of the a Golf Collector Society for a number of years. Well, Linda represents a, uh, uh, an interest of those artists. And I, I can do a quick segue to say that Linda has agreed uh, to be part of a group who will bring us a new, a novel uh, opportunity for our annual meeting uh, which, by the way, will be in my home city of Pittsburgh, um, um, on the outskirts of it, uh, in October of this year. And Linda will be part of a panel of seven who will talk about golf art and what they do, how they do it. And I'm hoping that we can create an educational session attached to that for our golf uh, art-interested persons of both our society and the visitors to our event the uh, Golf Heritage Society annual meeting and invite some of our youngsters from the first tee Pittsburgh and regionally into Ohio and uh, West Virginia and all the way out east uh, to Philadelphia. We can have a real opportunity to uh, take a step forward to acknowledge uh, those other folks um, in the appreciation of the game of golf. Yeah, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Maybe talk about your national meeting this year in Pittsburgh. Okay, I'm happy to do it. Again, working with Pete just uh, uh, recently, we have our fingers crossed that uh, we'll all be allowed to come out and play uh, because, in fact, we do that. We have a warm-up event on the Wednesday before our event. Usually, we have two days of frantic running around. Well, we have this uh, good idea, I think. Uh, to expand uh, to three or four days, invite people to come and relax and hang out with their friends. And Bill Reed, whom you mentioned earlier, has been generous enough to organize a hickory golf event. Um, and uh, uh, we, we do that uh, in advance of the formal gathering of the society. And last year we played um, at uh, uh, a Donald Ross um, uh, uh, um, venue outside of Cleveland because that's where the where we were. This year we'll we'll play um, probably just outside of Pittsburgh. We have several uh, places in mind. One of them, Edgewood Country Club in um, a Donald Ross venue about a mile from our uh, from our venue. So the, the yeah and and then the the organization starts its event. Uh, we'll have a uh, a play event. Uh, of course, we'll, we'll crown our Hickory champion. Um, it's it's generally a post-1900 event. But to it, uh, this is a novel idea for us because we are going to play our event at Latrobe Country Club on uh, October 1st. And Latrobe Country Club, uh, you know, but your listeners may not, is the course – uh, that Arnold Palmer grew up on, and his father, uh, Deke, um, Deacon uh, Palmer, was the groundskeeper and professional at that club. So it was the original training uh, place, uh, and uh, now uh, houses the uh, collection of Arnold Palmer himself. So we're yeah. excited That's to amazing. visit. That. Yeah, are people going to get to see some of that collection? You know, that is a negotiation. Um, the uh, Arnold Palmer Foundation understands that we're going to be there. They know who we are. And we're hoping to have some special access uh, to uh, parts of the collection. 
Um, I can tell you that uh, uh, Western PA folks are very fortunate because I, as regional director, uh, had visited the personal office space and uh, collection of Mr. Palmer uh, and uh, directed a group through there uh, three or four or five times. And then they had access to the major collection of all the um, uh, uh, collectibles that uh, Mr. Palmer had uh, uh, accumulated over the years, housed in what looked more like a, um, a an airline hangar uh, because of the size and scope. So that is the particular opportunity that we're hoping that we can acquire. Uh, the Latrobe folks have uh, told us that uh, since we're bringing a group, they'll bring out the Pennzoil tractor, uh, the one that Mr. Palmer used. In oh, that's the, cool. Yeah, the commercials from all the uh, uh, 70s. I guess it was 60s, 70s um, when they made those commercials. So, so Connor. So Thursday will be uh, will be at uh, Latrobe. Friday, uh, we will have our educational sessions. Uh, we usually have a lecture or two or three. We're hoping to have six uh, or eight. Uh, we'll have the panel discussion on golf art. We often will revisit club making and club repair. Uh, we try to have something novel in the way of history. We've had exceptional presentations. Uh, the USGA, we're anticipating they will be present. Uh, they have indicated interest. Uh, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that with fingers crossed. Uh, so they always bring uh, some collectibles uh, from uh, their, um, their collection uh, for us to learn some history and, and get excited about. Uh, we always have a banquet. Um, we are uh, anticipating our, our award ceremony where we recognize uh, any uh, recent uh, inductees to our Hall of Fame. Uh, so it, it's really uh, great fun. But the night or two before um, we uh, formally have our educational sessions, people roll into town. And we've um, designated um, um, just off the Turnpike Monroeville exit at the Monroeville Mall, the Doubletree Hotel is going to be our host. And uh, they have agreed to allow us to do what we do. Uh, we come in mass, we bring our stuff, and we set up our rooms to show it off. And we call that room trading. So, Connor, as you know from visiting, uh, people bring out their good stuff and they show them off in their rooms in anticipation of the trade show, which happens a day or so later. Yeah, and that's the big part. I mean, that's the, you know, if, if you want to find something really amazing, a lot of times you get the, you got to go to the room trading to find it. Otherwise, somebody else is going to snatch it up. <laughs> Connor, have you ever done that? I have. Yeah, I have. Well, tell us a story, why don't you? Oh man, I've got a lot. I mean, most of them. <laughs> most of them. I mean, Bill Reed and and Russ. I usually knew what they had going in because you know we were all coming from Iowa. This is back when I lived in Iowa. Uh, Randy Jensen was always a friend, so I, I always picked off his things pretty quickly. Uh, in my collection now, I'm trying to think how many. I, I believe I have two rut irons um, from the gutty era of golf, and a rut iron, folks. I'll do a podcast or maybe even a video series to better explain this, but it's essentially the forefather of the sand wedge. It was a trouble club, and it was meant to hit – it's also called a track iron. It was meant to hit the ball out of a wagon rut or a wagon track and is just about that size. So it's, uh, I'd probably say, two-thirds the size of a of 
a, you know, a sandwich day. It's almost about the size of a golf ball. And uh, they're quasi rare if you get them from, I, I think both of mine, I had one from Willie Park and the other one was from Carrick and got both at the show. I, and I don't think if that would have hit the uh, the floors, I would have found them. So basically, yeah, it's a good time. You know, you hope, you know, hopefully carrying around a beverage, you're going from room to room. You got a pretty good idea of who's where and, and, and what they have. And a lot of times it's social hour. It's as much as anything. It's, you know, you go in and pull up a chair and just, you know, talk to someone who has a fellow interest uh, that you share. And you just talk about history. You talk about their clubs. You talk about their collection. That's um, ah, just a great time. They're good people. Connor, you uh, thank you for the, all of that. Uh, that was the best commercial that I could uh, make for why it would be useful for a person to come and participate in our event. You touched on fellowship. You touched on uh, seeing something for the first time and being attracted to it like the rut iron. By the way, the rut iron, another way to describe it, is heavy. And the head of it, tell me if I'm wrong, Connor, uh, the, the, the face of it is barely bigger than your gutty golf ball. Yeah. It's, and the other thing I, I, I have noticed, I haven't st- I've studied 10 of them so far, is uh, they have a tremendous amount of bounce. For instance, my Carrick Red Iron has 24 degrees of bounce. Think about that. I mean, 1932, Gene Sarazen popularizes the use of bounce on the sand wedge. But I have yet to find a rut iron that didn't have at least eight degrees of bounce. I think my park has 12. So, you know, I always tell people that uh, in history, we never really learn anything new. It's something that's, it came from somebody else. And that's, I, I truly believe that the masters of club making somehow figured out that the use of a rut iron hitting out of a wagon rut, it would help to have bounce versus a dig sole. Because if you look at every other Hickory Club, you look at niblicks that followed them, they all have dig soles. So I find that extremely interesting, and I, I'm, that's something I need to explore in the future, is the use of bounce. I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, you know, I'm going to ask all of our listeners to simply close your eyes for a second. And let's say that you're with Connor and I um, playing a game of golf with a pre-1900, uh, quote, set under our arms because there's no golf bag and we don't have caddies today. We're carrying our own. So what is the venue we're playing? It's a field. And if it rained yesterday and a wagon crossed that field, it left a rut. And if you have need to hit out of that rut with a long-nosed club, I'd say you're in trouble. Uh, But if you have one of Connor's two prized possessions, you simply lift out of there and move on to the next bad lie you have. Hack it. (laughs) That's all it is. It's the hacking club, is it not? (laughs) That's why they're so heavy. They were made by smithies, were they not? Yeah. I I know my rut one, my rut iron, is off the swing weight scale. We we tried to weigh it at Russ Fisher's shop, and it was off the scale (laughs) heavy. I mean, it's just – and Randy Jensen – you know, going back to the these three guys that introduced me to this, uh, he actually popped the head just to take a look into it. And the Carrick rut iron, you can actually see the hammered steel being laid over. It's not a perfect oval. You can see the overlap of the steel in the inside of it. Which wow. is really I should have taken a photo because of course it's got that original shaft, which is the thing is like a broomstick. It's so thick. So um, when- Yeah, go ahead. So what you just said 
was the club talks to us. It, it tells us about its history. So last year I was um, working with one of our uh, ladies who's a uh, coach and mentor of the first tee of Pittsburgh. And we, we are now in our 12th year of taking youngsters out uh, to play hickory. And I was uh, saying to her that the club talks to me. It tells me where to stand for the best strike. Uh, and she's looking at me kind of as a skeptic. Uh, because she's a club fitter for uh, a certain uh, a certain large uh, distributor of clubs. I'm going to shamelessly say it's our good friend of Dick's because they treat the first tee very, very well. Um, and uh, she, she said, what are you talking about? And I said, look, these are both mashies. And there's a half inch or even an inch of where when you come through it, it's going to hit it a little right or a little left unless you put the club down next to the ball and you address – that ball as that club tells you where to stand with both your direction for your target and your um, uh, your loft and lie of that club. And she said, doggone it, I hear you. And as she played a couple holes with me, she had to admit that every single club is different. So, you know, a match set is matched because it's aligned with loft and lie. And maybe we find our sets and put them together for that. And maybe we have Russ bend them a little for us to get them just the way we want them. Yeah, they do. I agree 100%. Um, Let's get back to the show. I've got just for our listeners here. How does one go about um, attending the show? Like if you're not a member of the Golf Heritage Society, can can you come to the show? Sure. Of course you can. And we welcome public participation in several aspects. I think if you came early and you went back uh, to the uh, Doubletree Hotel uh, in the afternoon, evening, uh, you would find uh, very uh, willing and welcome uh, members of our society who would introduce you uh, to different collectibles. They would uh, educate you as to some things that you ask questions about, uh, both in terms of history, collectability, value, etc. Um, and those folks, uh, 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 it's a tradition of ours to be open, to be honest, uh, and to be um, uh, welcoming. Uh, and that's that would be uh, one way of, of doing it. Uh, I would recommend that, um, and I didn't give a pitch, but I'm going to do it now. For our, our other, our second um, uh, asset that I'd, I'd like to talk about, and that's our website. Uh, the Golf Heritage Society has a website, and it's golfheritage.org. And if you go to golfheritage.org, you'll see our soon-to-be um, uh, renovated homepage. I think it's going to come out uh, the end of May. Um, and it, it gives you resources, uh, links, and connectivity, but it also uh, guides you toward membership uh, to let you know how you could sign up today, right now, uh, and, and, and pay with PayPal. And then our executive director, um, uh, uh, Pete Georgity, will contact and send out information uh, uh, and a packet that we supply to our new members. So the application for membership is there. The invitation for the formal participation as a uh, new member are annual or just come on out and the the public can uh, visit uh, the trade show 
and find people with every imaginable uh, type of golf collectible um, to just sort of, you know, feel it out and learn. Uh, Or if they have a few collectibles that they want to add to, we can meet them at the door and identify uh, what we would say as an authority on a collectible that you want to learn more about. Kind of like an antique roadshow. For them. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, Connor, uh, when I have had opportunities to speak about the organization, um, I'd like to say that uh, one of the goals of the Golf Heritage Society is to be recognized within the, the world of golf as a go-to source uh, for intimate knowledge uh, of the people, places, and artifacts relating to golf and its history. Um, our members have practical uh, authoritative knowledge about so many types of collectibles uh, that it is astounding. Uh, many of our folks are authorities in different areas. Uh, they may not be an academic, but they certainly uh, have an astounding knowledge base that we very um, uh, we're very willing to share with both the public and our uh, fellow members. So I have a lot of people on the, uh, the on the podcast that listen to the podcast and on social media, um, and at least once a week, someone asks, "How do I build a collection?" What advice do you have for someone who wants to start building a collection of golf antiquities? Well, that's a that's a uh, two hour answer, but, uh, <laughs> and go. but let's 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 do that. Yeah, let's do the short version. Um, I, I gave a little bit of uh, personal history. I'm going to give a little bit more because, you know, I'll ask all of your listeners to open your eyes from the last time and close them again and think about what do you have? What do you have that's a, a personal treasure? What do you have that Connor and I uh, may be describing that you don't consider yet? You're collectible. But after you go after this podcast, you go to the basement and pull out Grandpap's old clubs and look them over. Hey, we'll help it tell you whether they're hangers or bangers. Uh, hangers are clubs that have some value, some historic significance, um, and you might want to not hit them. You might want to just hang them and admire them. Or you might have a group of bangers that are old and fun to play with and have at it. And when you break them, we'll get them fixed for you. So, you know, there's a lot of ways uh, that that folks can uh, engage in this. Me personally, I have a strategy. Um, Every time that a newbie um, is uh, mentored uh, by a seasoned collector, uh, they'll give you uh, some options. They can say, hey, if you want to become an expert, talk to these three people in this room and they'll get you started. Uh, If you have already a collection of gutty balls and you want to learn more and and become the next world's expert, that's what you do. If you want to get a smattering uh, of representative collectibles of the game of golf, you wander around the room and listen because those pieces will speak to you. It might be a colorful brochure from a uh, from a golf event. It might be a ball. It might be a ceramic uh, collectible. Uh, and then you start to have conversations with people who have them and are willing to uh, let go of one inexpensively to get you started off. So my collection um, reflects, like I said earlier, uh, a generalist approach. And, you know, um, I have some balls. I have some clubs. I have some paper products. I have some teas. I have some pencils. 
Um, I don't have thousands of anything. Um, what I think is a really fun way to do it, Connor, is, repl- you know, there, you could collect balls and it could be, well, what kind? Uh, are they autograph balls? Uh, you know, are they gutta percha? Um, I actually have uh, three replica featheries. So if you own three, didn't we say that's a collection? So they were made by three different, you know, makers. And, you know, I've putted with them. I've chipped with them. And it's fun to take those out for the kids to play with uh, and have some fun with a pre-1900 putter against those replica uh, feathery balls, for example. So I have uh, some autograph uh, balls. I have some uh, balls um, that have some unique uh, maker names uh, to them, go high, fly high, you know, et cetera, score low. Uh, so there's a, a hundred different ways to collect uh, uh, golf balls. So instead of getting too carried away with trying to get every corporate logo ball ever made, which probably numbers in the millions, we don't want to go there. I think for me, I want to have my five favorite smooth face clubs, my five favorite gutty balls, and upgrade them as I wish. Therefore, I can make an investment. Uh, I can make a purchase that is intentional and controlled. The early uh, collector uh, is sometimes overwhelmed. There's so many ideas and possibilities. I like to describe it as a psychological thing, as a family doc, Connor. Uh, You know, there can be impulse buying, and then there can be some compulsiveness to it that you just got to have well, I mean, it. Sometimes the impulse stuff is it's nearly impossible to avoid at the show. <laughs> right. I mean, like I, 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 I'm, you know, at this point in my life, um, I am fairly on a straight line of what I want in my collection. And still you see that shiny object in the corner and you just can't, you know, help yourself. I, I've been I've been pulled into the fray more times than I wish to admit even now. So I was hoping you would say something that sounded exactly like that, and you did. So that even if you're intentional, um, there's still room to learn and grow and and have a new type of antiquity and make new friends that can uh, learn you some more. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have had uh, times where I've had a budget uh, and want to um, expand a certain aspect of my uh, collection and I have. Uh, there have been other times where I really had a limited budget, but someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, Burn, uh, over there, someone has what you're looking for." And I say, "I'm not looking for that." And they say, "Yes, you are." And I said, "What is it?" And they said, "Well, it's a stamped club that was uh, owned by a person who's a Pittsburgh guy, or it was made in Pittsburgh vicinity, and it has Pittsburgh on it." So don't you know? I go over and I buy it because <laughs> that's, that's what friends are yeah, for: spending your yeah. money. At the show. You got it. But <laughs> on the flip side, there have been times, Connor, so that people won't be scared away by this, that you can go in, especially if you're new, and not spend a dime. Sure. You can go in you and go say, just hey, yeah. right, right. That's the key word. Learn. Because you can just, you know, buddy up with somebody and say, what are you showing? And tell me all about it. Uh, what is your favorite? What is your speciality? 
what do you like the most? What do you have the most invested in? Uh, what's an easy way to get started? Uh, what's the wrong way to do it? And, you know, our membership will help you uh, uh, do it your way. So uh, we have high-end people come in uh, and say, I want to uh, come in at a fairly high level. I want to make some investments because I just found out about this and I want to go there. And we have young people that we don't want them to um, develop um, uh, uh, poor behavioral habits in terms of uh, accumulating uh, and feeling uh, a, a sense of uh, need to purchase. So we balance what we do, um, I think, in a very fair and appropriate way, yet we're able to educate and as you and I have been talking, we're able to entertain because the clubs, the collectibles, they entertain. And that is the greatest uh, attraction to um, really being part of a trade show. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think so- one of the things to jump into here, Burn, is we're not all just talking about thousands of dollars worth of clubs in this trade show. I mean, there's items in there that you could probably buy for 50 cents. There's a Bingo. little bit of everything for everyone. Would you say that's, that's a- fair? It's more than fair. I think that's what we want. Uh, And, you know, one nice thing also is that we have um, uh, and we've talked about this offline corner that, you know, when you have a a collectible, um, you own it, perhaps, but you possess it. But you actually are the curator of it because it's not going to disappear or disintegrate. um, And it's up to you to own it, display it, share it, uh, and then find a home for it when your time with it is done. So at a trade show online and uh, within our website, we have opportunities for people uh, to gain good value uh, from collectors who, um, you know, found something inexpensively, but that has uh, market value um, if you looked it up. And they're willing to say, well, I have into it less than the market value. As you, as a new collector, a new person involved, I'm going to cut you this deal. And and there's a lot of that too. It is. And you, yeah, you. That's think why that, I always change my look to make it look like I've never been there before. So then I tell people <laughs> I'm a newbie and I get the best deals. No, I'm just kidding. Well. Well, um, I've seen you. You're that guy with that funky mustache. I got I know, it. No, I got the beard going on right now. I don't. I'm gonna have to shave it or something. <laughs> no, but in any way, that's that's another way that the fellowship of the society manifests itself, and I'm very very proud of that. Um, you know, just to extend that little uh, venue or that little vignette. You know, you can be uncomfortable to say, can I trust this person? Uh, And when you go over and ask the next person casually, you say that the original person, well, let me think about that for 10 minutes. And you go two tables down and see something that looks the same and say, what would you be asking for that? And they tell you book value because that's close to what they paid for it or they've had it. They want to have a little bit of profit for gas money to get home. Uh, And then you go moseying on back uh, with a new knowledge of, wow. Uh, that is a deal, and you uh, shell out, and you now have a new personal treasure because someone in the society met you, engaged you, introduced you, educated you, and took care of you. That's yeah. how it works. That's that, how it works. That's a takeaway here, too, is, is, is when you're getting into things that you collect, everything you pick up is both worth nothing 
and worth millions of dollars. Amen. I mean, and, and what I'm getting at here, folks, is that, again, value is in the eye of the beholder. There are uh, you know, reference books. Pete Georgie has some brilliant reference books on pricing and, and suggested pricing for hickory shafted clubs. Uh, but uh, there are people out there that would pay five times what Pete's book would say, and there would be some people out there that would pay zero for that same club. So it's one thing just to remember. I, I always tell people, what makes something valuable is the story behind it. There's really no one thing in golf collectibles that I know of that has value without a story behind it. And if that story is important to you, it is valuable. And if it's not, it's not very valuable to you. It's just one way to look at it. It's a great way to look at it. Connor, so if you take a book, you take a club, a ball, um, an artistic um, golf-themed uh, item, you can find a member within our society that can help you bring that artifact to life, uh, to tell you more about who did it, uh, when, and maybe not why, but where. Um, so a, a Pete Georgity uh, can tell you where a club was made, uh, when, um, and uh, oftentimes by who. We, we've talked before about um, identifying clubs and having um, clique marks on them, uh, which identify who, when, uh, and where. Uh, and it's, it's a fun way to uh, engage the young people uh, after they've played Hickory to turn over those clubs. And as a, maybe a homework assignment of sorts, uh, go online and look up George Nickel and see that he's a different guy than uh, Tom Stewart and see where they lived and where they made clubs and when. And then an American-made club, uh, see how uh, the, um, uh, the world of golf uh, production transitioned into the United States in the East Coast and in the, the, the Chicago area. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot yeah. of fun. Well, what do you think is the biggest misconception uh, for those looking to start a collection? Do you think it's cost? I th- yeah, I think, think that's, it's going to cost right. you, you know, thousands of dollars. I think that's right. I, I, I think when people look online uh, and see some uh, auction results um, that are uh, um, high priced, uh, it can be daunting. Uh, however, um, the people that make those purchases either have the means or understand the history or uh, want to um, be the next curator of, of that, um, that historic uh, item. And uh, that's okay. That's who they are. So always be asking yourself, who are you uh, as an um, appreciator of a, a golf item, whether it's in antiquity uh, or whether it has um, interest because it's a U.S. Open or a Ryder Cup venue scorecard uh, or a pencil, uh, you know. So we've gone the gamut from a high-end auction item to something you might see at a yard sale, um, uh, uh, for example. So, you know, I, I have a good friend. He's, he's uh, since passed, Lee Christ. Uh, Lee Christ was called Mr. T. He was the world's foremost collector uh, of golf tees of uh, every type, new, old, uh, unusual. And in our journal called Now the Golf, used to be the Bulletin. Uh, and by the way, 
There's 50 years on archive of our bulletin uh, from the from the original papers of 1970 from Robert Kuntz and Joe Murdoch right up to the last edition where you can also learn about uh, clubs and, and, and these items. But anyway, um, that gentleman, Lee Christ, and his lovely wife, Barbara, were one of the first people I met in the society. Um, you know, we laughed, we talked, we played some hickory golf together. And Lee's background was in marketing, and he was a um, um, uh, active uh, board member for the society for a number of years. But he authored a short piece uh, called Tea Talk, T E E T A L K. And we would all learn and appreciate something about the different types, types of teas from Lee's collection. And Lee would make available to me at a reduced cost some interesting things. And, you know, I would buy them now. They're treasures because they were from the collection of Lee Christ. And and I'm the next curator of part of that collection. Not all of it, not a lot of it, but a very special part of it. See how it works? It's fun. Yeah. I, I think it, when I think of value, I think of um, think about those first clubs that you had with the, the Bode Hickory Shaft and the uh, the Pyrotone uh, Shafted Club, the Mashie. What would those be of value to you right now if that exact same set was at the show, assuming you don't have it now? Well, there's only one one word for it, and it's priceless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's priceless. I, so, I, I um, myself have something that I revere that is worth zero. Oh, I, I don't know if it's zero, but when I play a historic course, I... Uh, ask for permission, mind you folks at home. Uh, I asked for permission to take some sand out of that famous course's famous bunker. So I have a some sand from Hell Bunker at St. Andrews. Oh boy. I have from uh, the 16th hole at Cypress Point. I have from Hell's Half Acre at Pine Valley. Uh, I have from the Redan Hole at National Golf Links of America. Sitting in a vase around my desk and if people come in they think it's crazy they're like yeah you got this weird sand on a shelf wait connor you can't finish without talking about the the uh, the bunkers at oakmont oh yeah oakmont i have oakmont i've got the church pews but more importantly i'm gonna give you one that you'll like even better go ahead i have the sand from oakhurst links oh man which is basically little rocks yeah (laughs) it's right here (laughs) i've got the oakhurst gutty on this little vase (laughs) <laughs> and I'll, I'll put a photo of this out here when we uh, publish this. But uh, basically, Little Rocks, sitting next to Downers Grove, which is where I held the first All-American Hickory Tournament. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah it's just, and that's a weird little thing that I do. And I, I get it. I'm a nut job for doing it, but there's something that's about cool. it. I, sometimes I'd pick it up, and I just like I did with the Oakhurst sand, and I look at it, and I I'd compare it to... Um, you know, maybe the, the Sam from Pinehurst or Maidstone or Cherry Hills or wherever. Wow. Uh, I call it my golf DNA collection because golf courses are sand and grass. You, you did a couple of things. You connected you and I because we've both played Oakhurst. And I've actually connected with you because I've helped to make some of that sand. There are no sand traps per se. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah. Well, well, the, the ones that um, – that I helped to create at Oakhurst was off a bad lie off the roadway and, and skipping off the rock to make some of that sand you have. Was that uh, on hole one or two? Number one. Yeah. I, I uh, have a yeah. Carrick, um, gosh, what is it? Is a Carrick General Iron uh, that still has a gash in it 
from hitting one off of the second the second hole. I hit it right off a rock because you know, folks, when you play uh, Oker Slinks, there is no uh, relief. You hit it off the road, <laughs> so, and your and your clubs show the markings of that. So, Connor, you know, you could you could have a podcast that just talks about stories from Oakhurst. You know, we can go offline and create a, a couple of more uh, podcast opportunities. For well, I you. hope to. I yeah. actually hope to record a podcast from the National uh, Hickory Championship, much like I plan on being at your show and having a live podcast from the the show, because I, I think it's important to get these stories and collections and talk about these things that not everybody gets to see. Hopefully you get to see yeah, it attending think, the show, but you know, if you don't otherwise, you get a chance to hear it on the show. So I, I think that's all great. And and if I can do a um, uh, repeat of saying that the knowledge base of our membership is asset number one, uh, I mentioned the, um, the website of the Golf Heritage Society, golfheritage.org. Please go there, listening audience, uh, ladies, youngsters, oldsters, gentlemen, uh, and find us and and learn history. Uh, look at what people collect. We don't specify that you have to be a collector. We just want to help you understand that there's a thousand ways or more to appreciate the game of golf. And finally, look at our publication, The Golf. It's our quarterly um, we used to call it the Bulletin, as I said, up until 2018 when we changed the name. We also changed the journal. Uh, it's, a, it's an accumulation of collectibles, history, people, places, and things of the game of golf. A few commercials, some of them reproductions from the old days, uh, and a few of them from our sponsors. So, you know, we, we love them dearly and we're developing opportunities to have more and more uh, corporate sponsors who who hear us and want to support us. But in any case, our publication, The Golf, we look forward to it coming out. It connects the modern game with its roots. It's a real fun, interesting read that we all look forward to. It's written by our members. It highlights that deep base of golf knowledge, that ability to bring the game to life that, that we can do for our membership. So these are the opportunities that we place before, before people, whether they choose to be involved in an economic sense to um, uh, possess things or uh, accumulate a few treasures or anything in between. Mostly it's about the fellowship and the fun that we can have through the game of golf. Bern, I like that. Um, let's let's jump into this. I have basically two more subjects before we let you go. Um, go for it. Why why is it important to celebrate and learn about golf history for you? Two, three, four second to compose that thought. You know, uh, the best way to say it is when I'm holding a, um, a club of the past uh, or standing on a venue uh, that has historic connection, it's, it's again, a, a way to live and breathe and feel um, uh, people from uh, before you and, and uh, understand some things uh, about the game. And only imagine who will follow you there and hold maybe that same club in the future. Um, so uh, to be honest, the 
the relevance for me is really uh, a deep connection, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost an existential uh, uh, opportunity to just relax and enjoy. You know, I'm not about um, the, the, the low score. I'm about the best I can do today. And uh, I don't put any pressure on myself. I do the best I can when I play. I've played in uh, 10, uh, well, I've played in, yeah, 10 NHCs, four U.S. Hickory Opens, all 12 of the Foxburg Gutty Opens, uh, and any number of friendship, fellowship, um, uh, gatherings for uh, hickory and classic golf play. So to answer it in sort of a long way, Connor, it, it's the connection. It's the fellowship, the connection with the game and how it feels today. How do people, how can people find out more about the Golf Heritage Society? How can they join and what are the costs? What's the best way? Well, I'm going to answer the last question uh, first. The best is um, to go online and find us at golfheritage.org. Um, you know, our, we're in the 50th year, and our board of directors in our strategic plan for outreach and membership expansion, uh, growth and breadth, we decided in our 50th year uh, we're going to have a $50 membership. Well, we're halfway through that first 50th year celebration. So we're going to reduce for the second half of 2020 uh, the membership fee to uh, uh, $25, half of 50, uh, to engage as many people as possible. So um, this a little bit dates the podcast, um, but it's fun for us to celebrate uh, that we have celebrated 50 uh, by charging 50 and then even reducing it further. So we welcome people to find us uh, in a lot of different ways, um, you know, through our journal um, and through our um, website and through friends that you come to know, uh, know a little bit about us at the Golf Heritage Society. That's that's my best answer. Yeah, I'll give, I'm going to give everybody a plug, uh, especially for 25 bucks. Um, for $25, I want you folks to think about this. If you're interested in, in collecting uh, golf antiquities, if you're learning, interested in learning more about history, if you're interested in um, art, uh, one of the best things you get from joining the Golf Heritage Society, perhaps one of the most valuable, is the membership directory, which has what people collect, what they're experts in, and their contact information. So like, let's just say you, you're, you're into Bobby Jones. Right, you can open that up in alphabetical order. You can open it up and actually search by state, so who's around you, and see what like-minded interests are out there. Maybe they have an expert level that you don't have. Maybe they have an RTJ iron that you have that you need for your collection. For twenty-five dollars, it basically connects you with hundreds of historians, collectors, artists uh, around the world that can help you build your collection, learn more about an item, you know, learn more about history, find a fantastic deal, all that for $25. That's a pretty good get. Connor, thank you for that. Um, You mentioned the use of our directory, and it's going to grow. And and we will continue to um, label our interests and our our areas of uh, expertise, uh, authoritative uh, commentary, if you will. I will also direct folks to understand that our website, uh, again, thegolfheritage.org, 
uh, we'll allow you to look a little bit uh, around at who we are, what we do. I'll tell you a little bit about our, our history and formation, our board of directors, our contact people. But it will, what it will also do will allow our members for that $25 to access those archives of 50 years. What that means is it's digitized. It is allowing uh, a member who has access to type in Bobby Jones and go through the entire uh, collection uh, and by uh, topic uh, that you've typed in, accelerate your uh, research and learning about a topic of your choice. Because you're an academic and want to really delve deeply into the history, or because you're doing a little quick research to learn all the different types of um, um, gutty ball or um, uh, bounding billy ball um, to find out what that is and learn who made it and where and, and why we don't have them today. So that opportunity for our membership to uh, expand uh, and welcome people for that uh, low entry price. We're very, very proud of that. Thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Golf History Podcast, Dr. Bernanke. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at the national show this year in Pittsburgh. Always great to connect with people who appreciate the rich history golf has to offer. Connor Lewis, thank you for having me. I've had a real good time with you today. appreciate the opportunity. So yeah, long. Absolutely. Folks at home, in your car or in your office, I hope you enjoyed this insight into this 50-year-old organization dedicated to preserving and sharing our collective golf history. The Golf Heritage Society is designed to connect you with like-minded people who can share their knowledge and assist you with your journey through golf history. Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>